And here come the Greeks, led out by their veteran centre-half, Heraclitus. And here come the Germans now, led by their skipper, Nobby Hagel. The Greeks are going mad! The Greeks are going mad! This is Philosophy for Theologians, the latest program from Reform Forum online at reformforum.org. My name is Camden Busey. I'm very pleased to be broadcasting here from Studio B in Glenside, Pennsylvania. I have with me today Jared Oliphant, who is Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary, just down the road in Glenside, Pennsylvania. How are you doing, Jared? I'm great, Camden. Good to be here. Yeah, this is going to be exciting. We also have with us, of course, the proprietor of this fine establishment, Jonathan Brack, who is Admissions Counselor at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's also an MDiv student there, uh, hoping to do future work someday in the philosophy and apologetics. How are you doing, Jonathan? Doing great. I love the show. <laughs> it's great. Uh, well, we're going to be continuing our series here, looking at various things in uh, philosophy and trying to give a good per- reformed perspective and critique upon them. Today we're going to be dealing with Bertrand Russell's infamous uh, article, Why I Am Not a Christian. Uh, Bertrand Russell delivered this lecture back in March, uh, March 6th, 1927 to the National Secular Society, South London branch at Battersea Town Hall. And this has become kind of the, uh, the document, uh, the founding document of many people's uh, views on Christianity. So we're going to be discussing it today, discussing Bertrand Russell just a little bit. And uh, to do so, I'm going to pass things over to Jared Oliphant, who's going to get us started with Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell. Um, just to, I wanted to start out with a little bit of an overview. His dates were 1872 to 1970, so he uh, died at the ripe old age of 98. Wow. Um, so that's that's quite a span. You think of everything that he experienced um, in his lifetime, you know, pre-20th century to 1970. A um, little bit of his background, he uh, studied at um, Trinity College in Cambridge, um, ironically Trinity College. He won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1950. Um, basically, you know, along the lines of an overview, he rejected idealism. Um, so, you know, people like Hegel and he embraced realism. So he was very, very focused on science. Uh, mathematics is really where he had a specialty. Um, logical positivism kind of reigned when, when he was at his heyday. And, um, and this particular piece that we're going to be looking at, um, his why I am not a Christian, we're going to be looking at this particular essay, not uh, there's a, there's a book out there that's really a collection of other essays that he wrote, but we're going to focus in on uh, why I'm not a Christian proper. He, uh, like I said, he got into mathematics and then that developed into philosophy, and um, you can find uh, a more extensive uh, treatment of his view in um, a volume uh, by W. T. Jones. Um, it's the 20th century to Quine and Derrida. It's a good philosophy reference it just has a lot of figures um where he gives original sources and mm-hmm. tries to sum up um what they thought and give give an overview so it's a good source you can find those uh, online you can find used copies all the way down for about five dollars each i bought the whole set piecemeal and i think i paid forty dollars for the five volume set or something it's yeah it's a good thing to have on the shelf and he gives decent treatment of the big figures in philosophy bertrand russell of course being one of the foremost of the 20th century. Yeah, that's right. So if you you know if you Google uh, Jones, a history of Western philosophy, you'll find that out there. It's a good reference. Um, so he sums it up uh, a little bit in the beginning. So I'm I'm partially borrowing from that. Um, but he was uh, in his lifetime really an activist, um, very concerned with like the public good, um, morals, ethics, those kinds of things. Um, in in practice, uh, mathematics is where he focused his theory. Um, and also, Jones mentioned that uh, during World War One, he was actually imprisoned for uh, pacifism. So he's hmm. pretty involved out there in the culture. But what we wanted to focus on is um, this essay called Why I Am Not a Christian. Um, we do that really for obvious reasons, but also because it was an influential essay in its time. It kind of summarized on a popular level what a lot of people were thinking um, in terms of, you know, what is Christianity? How do you think about God? What are the moral implications of these things? Um, so I wanted to just go through it and, and just briefly um, hit the high points and maybe see if there's some discussion with you guys. Um, so he he really uh, – oh, by the way, I should mention this was written in uh, 1927, just to give right. you a, a historical reference there. And to connect that to our tradition, obviously Westminster Theological Seminary is founded in 1929. This is yeah. right 
right in the midst of the modernist fundamentalist debate uh, out of which the Orthodox Presbyterian Church was formed, breaking off from uh, the mainline Presbyterian Church. There's an awful lot going on in, in our tradition That's at right. this time period. <clears throat> Obviously, he, uh, Bertrand Russell, I would like to say, he led the British revolt against idealism in the early 1900s. Um, I don't know too much about his, his personal relationship, but some of the key figures in philosophy at that time, especially in Britain, were F.H. Bradley and Bernard Bosanquieu, two guys of which uh, Cornelius Van Til wrote a lot about. Mm-hmm. And he had a, a lot to deal with, uh, to do with uh, criticizing their views. They held to uh, something called British absolute idealism. And uh, there's some really, really interesting things involved in their views and then Van Til's critique, particularly Van Til's theology of uh, the Trinity and personality. A lot mm-hmm. of these guys held to different views about their, their needing to be a personal force in the universe, uh, the personal ideal, sometimes called the... Uh, uh, personalism that was picked up by the Boston personalists later, later on, uh, by uh, a guy named Borden Parker Bone, who was um, uh, a key personalist in this sphere. So you find you find Van Til dealing with F.H. Uh, Bradley, Bernard Bosanquieu, a lot of these guys throughout his writings. It really is all over the place, but I think you can probably find most of it in Survey of Christian Epistemology as well as uh, Introduction to Systematic Theology. Yeah. So. Uh, it, Russell, uh, though not not a personalist like uh, these other guys, is certainly in this mix and definitely in this time period. So he's in this milieu of British philosophy at the time. Yeah, yeah, good, good context there. Um, and I should also mention this essay is really written on a popular level. It was a lecture um, given to the National Secular Society. Um, and he starts out like any good uh, 20th century analytic philosopher by, okay, this essay is called Why I Am Not a Christian. So let's define Christian. What, what does it mean and why aren't you one? Um, so he said, this is a direct quote. He says, some people mean by Christian no more by it than a person who attempts to live a good life. That's That may be one definition of, of Christian that's kind of floating out there at the time, which is interesting. Um, you know, J. Gresham Mason wrote Christianity and Liberalism in 1923, um, and he's really addressing this version of um, Christianity, which he argues is actually not a version of Christianity. It's right. liberalism. It, it's mm-hmm. something completely different. Um, I heard so, this on um, Glenn Beck. <laughs> yeah, it was mentioned there. That's right. <laughs> and I think it boosted uh, Amazon's uh, ranking of even Christianity and liberalism. Yeah. Um, so that that's one definition that some people go with. It's interesting. Uh, just later on in that paragraph, he also mentions um, he's he's harking back to Augustine and Aquinas, and, and the quote is he says this. He says, "In those days, um, Augustine and Aquinas days, if a man said that he was a Christian, it was known what he meant. You accepted a whole collection of creeds, which were set out with great precision, and every single syllable of those creeds you believed with the whole strength of your convictions." So he's basically setting up a contrast between historical definitions of what a Christian is and the kind of modern version that he sees going right. on in the late 1920s um, that's reflected in a lot of the literature at that time. Mm. So he gets right into it, um, and the, the heading is, What is a Christian? Um, this is after that overview. Uh, he gets into what uh, is essential for a Christian to believe, and he claims that uh, there are really basically three things you, you have <laughs> to like believe. Yeah. yeah, you have to believe in God. Uh, you have to believe in immortality, and you have to have some kind of belief about Christ, right. um, which is, I guess, is inherent. And that in would it. distinguish them from Mohammedans. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and he goes on to to give the distinctions there. Um, he also says in, in that same paragraph, um, I do not think that Christ was the best and wisest of men, although I grant him a very high degree of moral goodness. Um, and we'll we'll come back to that a little later. Um, he also mentions in that in that same section that um, he doesn't think that a Christian must believe in hell. It's kind of it was interesting to see his thought process in this. And again, this is at a popular level, and huge, huge philosophical concepts are covered in just a few paragraphs. So you got to give him a break on some things. But he's kind of observing that there are people who claim to be Christians out there, a good deal, who actually don't believe in hell, and so. Yeah. Um, he's not really taking it from a doctrinal point of view at this point. He's really just surveying the Christian landscape and seeing, I don't think that that's really essential. It's almost like he knows what a Christian is um, by looking, but he's trying to define yeah. it. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's an empirical way to go about defining something. Yeah, surprise, surprise. Yeah, surprise. So um, then he gets into a lot of the arguments. Um, I think for a lot of these, he's really speaking to um, the Catholic Church, or really speaking against the Catholic ver- Catholic Church version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't really specify um, what theological school he's he's going against, but he mentions the Catholic Church a lot of times, so I'm just kind of inferring that that's who he has in mind when he's talking about these differences. Um, and part of it is he goes um, through basically Aquinas' arguments. Um, so he starts out with the first cause argument. Um, he describes it. He says, you must come to a first cause, and to that first cause you give the name God. This is going off of Aquinas again. He says, that argument, I suppose, does not carry very much weight nowadays because in the first place, cause is not quite what it used to be. And again, he's going off of his uh, scientific worldview, his empirical worldview, logical positivism. Um, He relates a personal um, anecdote. He says um, that when he was first kind of thinking about this question, um, he says here, um, quoting John Stuart Mill, who was another philosopher, my father taught me that the question, "Who, who made me, cannot be answered since it immediately suggests the further question, who made God? That very simple sentence showed me, as I still think, the fallacy in the argument of the first cause. If everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. If there can be anything without a cause, it may just as well be the world as God. Mm -hmm. Um, And then a little bit later, there is no reason why the world could not have come into being without a cause, nor, on the other hand, is there any reason why it should not have always existed. Mm. And... um, it just struck me at that point that, you know, if you're just looking at the argument on its own and taking it, quote unquote, from reason alone, that I actually agree with Russell on this point. Yeah. Um, there's no way that you can say that um, an infinite regress of causes is, for some reason, incoherent or improbable or, or anything else. You find like different apologists now who still like to use this uh, this argument. They, yeah. They've modified it and they say... Well, everything that requires a cause must have a cause, but the first cause does not require a cause. Yeah, which is true. But to to someone who's just dealing on the this logical level, it's just absurd. Yeah, and this and then they would say, well, why can't why can't the universe be one of those things? Right, right. That's a good that's a good objection. Is this how do you just uh, put inside of there a god who has who is a being? I think know? exactly, Jonathan. I think I think this is a good. Uh, well, just for that, I'm going to give you the Jonathan. Uh, <laughs> but well done. I, I, well done. Well done, good and faithful apologist. Um, it, it just goes to show, I think, that a lot of these arguments, um, when we go at them in this classical model, uh, you're going to find throughout these programs that we appreciate the proofs and we would use them uh, within a certain framework. But oftentimes when they're used as the ultimate argument, or if that's your principal argument, they just don't work for somebody who's not espousing your particular worldview. And so someone like Russell is saying, well, you know, okay, there needs to be a first cause. If, if the regression, if there isn't going to be an infinite regression and the, the causes, the cause chain has to stop somewhere, why can't it just stop with the universe? And he's got a point from within his system. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, and we can come back to this. And then he, he goes on and, and um, I mean, he just basically goes through the arguments and just kind of picks them apart and says, here's why I don't think they make sense. Here's where there are some inconsistencies. So he then moves on to um, the natural law argument. And this this argument, again, I think is, is pretty weak on its own. It basically says that regularity and uniformity in nature, such as uh, the planets moving around in a certain particular way, um, those kinds of laws and things in nature um, mean that there must be a God controlling those. And it's almost it's almost the other side of the coin with like the fine-tuning argument. Yeah. Um, but it's basically just recognizing that there is regularity and uniformity in nature. And so God must be in control because there's such regularity and uniformity. Um, he takes this apart. I mean, given his science background, he, he is an authority to speak on this issue. Um, so he brings up, look, we used to have a system that was Newtonian. Um, that has been modified completely by Einstein. And remember, he's writing in 1927, so these kinds right. of things are just starting to come to the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also says that um, he kind of indicates that your metaphysical stance um, definitely plays a part in your whole view of law and order and those kinds of things. So if you start from chance, which he does, it doesn't necessarily mean that things are 
ordered in a design type way. It just right. means that they happen to, you know, end up that way. Um, it says nothing you know, about right. who, who actually put those into place or if there is anyone who put those into place. So, um, anyway. Again, um, it shows some of the shortcomings of using these types of proofs with, with somebody who has a completely different framework and worldview than you. He has ways of explaining these things. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and just one more quote out of this section, um, which is interesting because we can, um, at some point on this show, get into questions like, does God have a nature and is God dependent on things because he has a nature if he doesn't have a nature? Things like that. But um, a quote that I wanted to read out of this section is, uh, he says, if there were a reason for the laws which God gave, then God himself was subject to law. And therefore, you do not get any advantage by introducing God as an intermediary um, mm. from the laws into their their implementation. So he really is thinking about these in a, a deep way and considering them on their own grounds, um, mm-hmm. which I definitely appreciate. Um, and along these same lines, he then goes in naturally to the argument from design, which, as uh, a lot of us know, uh, Dawkins kind of camps out here um, in the work that he does. He, Richard uh, Dawkins, for Richard those, Dawkins, yeah, for those who might not know, who That's wrote right. uh, what was his most famous book, uh, The God Delusion, yeah, yeah, and uh, so the watchmaker. Um, that's a common analogy. So uh, that argument basically says, uh, if the world was ever so little different, uh, we could not manage to live in it. Again, kind of a, a modification of the fine tuning um, principle that you see throughout a lot of these arguments. Um, and, and also mentions Darwin. Uh, you know, Darwin has, was just beginning to really be used in like a philosophical way, in, a, in an atheist way. Um, and we clearly see that today with the quote unquote new atheists that are out there. And we've touched on that. Mm. So you, you really can't see the um, development from um, this kind of, I guess you could call it first uh, 20th century atheism to what we're experiencing now with the Dawkins, with the Hitchens and those guys and a Dennett, um, that tradition as well. Um, any general comments on on the design arguments or, or I'd be curious just for the for illustrative purposes Jonathan if you could perhaps explain what Hume might say to Russell on the point of design or or any of these other points just to give a different perspective like Russell will say well these things may be evolved or there there's a natural order that these things come about or uh, probabilities are involved in things. We don't have to have a God to explain these. And Hume will likewise say, well, right, we don't have to have a God to explain these things, but he would certainly give a completely different answer as, in terms of what we see as cause and effect or the order within the universe, would he not? Uh, I'm not sure. Would he say, um, he he would usually say it's it's basically us recognizing habits. Yeah. So he'd just get away with uh, the idea of empirical law altogether. So to something like the the question of first causes, what would Hume say? He says there are no causes, right? Because right? you can't you know prove cause and effect in the first place. Yeah. So so it just goes to show as an apologist, if you have a bag, this is a little maybe uh, too not coarse but a little simplistic. But if you have a bag of tricks, uh, meaning you have certain proofs. Who are you going to use them against? Well, you go to Russell, and he gives you the answer, well, why can't the universe be the first cause? Yeah. You go to Hume, unbeliever, right. he says, what are you talking about causes? There right. are no causes. They're mental habits. Yeah. We just observe change. The whole concept yeah. of cause is uh, you know, a man-made construction as far as he's concerned. Exactly. So you know, there's a deeper issue, something deeper at root, and the, and the proofs um, are not just a, a tool that you can use against every single unbeliever it's right. not like the proofs match up against unbelief they they tend to work well against different types of unbelief right he would just say even even if he just granted you the argument of first causes he would actually nuance it to say well actually what you mean to say is that it seems yeah. as if there's a first cause but as far as certainty goes mm-hmm. that first cause is a posteriori to mm-hmm. your to your sense data. In mm-hmm. other words, an a priori argument. In other words, there's no, there's nothing inherent about the way you think that requires uh-huh. a cause. Right. So, yeah, yeah, he would say, yeah, sure, it might be that way, but you can't tell me this is certainly the case, and I've shown with absolute certainty 
So completely exactly right. Yeah. But I think I think sometimes it's good to point that out because as a Christian apologist, we can just assume that unbelief is unbelief, or people that reject God. Um, or people that are atheists uh, are all the same. It's yeah. not at all the case. That's, That's a right. completely ignorant view. Uh, so we have to be wise to that as apologists to know that you know people come at these conclusions for, from various different uh, trajectories, various different systems of thought. Yeah. Um, and just uh, elaborating on, on this, um, I think he- here's the rub. I'll read one more quote from this section. Um Russell says, when you come to look into this argument from design, it is a most astonishing thing that people can believe that this world, with all the things that are in it, with all its defects, should be the best that omnipotence and omniscience have been able to produce in millions of years. Mm. So he's exactly right. If you just look at this world, and you, this world can be a terrible, horrible place. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need to give examples. You know, Holocaust is the one that everybody kind of defaults to. But if you just look at that, um, and everything that it includes, if you're talking about design, um, y- you know, it, it had to have been designed just horribly, you mm-hmm. know, just on its own. If you're just an empirical observer, um, it, it had to have been designed with um, people suffering, um, people doing horrible things to each other and, and just a wreck. So um, he's got a real valid point here. Yeah. And, and I think it speaks to well, then that's not really where we need to start is just empirical observation. Um, Again, it's connotation, denotation, that the fact and the meaning are always combined, meaning you have to have, you know, any occurrence, you have to understand it within uh, its context. Yeah. And we understand the Holocaust as a result of the fall and the, and the curse of sin and right. man's responsibility. Bertrand Russell, looking at the Holocaust or, or, or um, didn't happen yet, but looking at other events, um, such as that mm-hmm. World War One, for instance, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> will say something completely different. He'll look at it and, and assume a Christian might think about it from one perspective, um, but that not at all being the case. So even when Russell's dealing with a certain type of Christianity that he's trying to define, um, there are going to be points or parts of the system of doctrine that he's not considering. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. But even if he was, I mean, he still is not... Not gonna. <laughs> he's still not gonna agree. <laughs> All right. Um, so this this naturally flows into his next section, which is uh, the moral arguments for deity. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I mean, the moral card really is where I think everything everything comes together. Um, so he was kind of just building his case from uh, you know somewhat um, theoretical things, uh, first cause and, and natural law and things like that to. This is really where it hits home, um, the defects in the world, the moral arguments. Um, one quote that he has here is, one form of this argument is to say that there would be no right or wrong unless God existed. Mm. And um, you hear a lot of objections to this in the current New Atheist uh, debate. They basically say, look, I don't need a version or a concept of God to have morality. Um, I can do that all on my own, thank you. Um, yeah. I know that murder is wrong, um, right. and I don't need God to come in here and tell me that. Um, it's, quote-unquote, obvious from, um, I guess, just observing things and maybe you know some kind of internal Or sometimes instinct. they try to use utilitarian ethics to say yeah. you know, that, that acting rightly and doing good things is, is of benefit to the most people, so therefore that's that's why we should do them. But it seems as though the moral argument is where Christians are more likely to go right. than atheist. Yeah, because um, it's it really is difficult for an atheist to on the spot give a whole system ethic. of ethics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's it's almost a sort of straw man attempt. To, yeah, if, from Christians to atheists, they're like, well, where you know, where do you get morals? Right. And it's like, well, I'm not sure. But if you ask that to other Christians, they might not have a full ethic. As well. They might not be able to they, articulate it. Right. Yeah. They might not be able to articulate either. Yeah. So. And um, I should also mention that uh, in the Jones volume, it explains Russell really wanted to step back and do kind of a theory of everything. So when we mention ethics, um, that's going to fit into his metaphysics as well, like it has to. I mean, for anybody who is going to defend their ethical stance, um, it inevitably uh goes back to their metaphysics and their epistemology yeah, and all those to. things are, yeah, are, they're completely interrelated. Um, and so 
Russell in trying to give a theory of everything, this is one part of that, um, and they all bleed into each other. So he goes on um, again. This it's a natural flow that he goes into the argument for the remedying of injustice. Um, he says that uh, the argument says that uh, the existence of God is required in order to bring justice into the world. This is I see this as kind of a subcategory of the moral argument. Um, but he later on he says um, a scientific person would argue about the universe uh, this way. He would say, "Here we find in this world a great deal of injustice." And so far as that goes, that is a reason for supposing that justice does not rule in the world. And therefore, so far as it goes, it affords a moral argument against deity and not in favor of one, Um, which, again, I think is true. Um, I think it's another subversion of the moral argument, but just cloaked in kind of justice terms. Right. Um, And then he he gets into, all right, uh, you know, a basic essential – belief in christianity is uh, a belief in christ and so what's christ's character and so he goes into the character of christ he says um uh he is talking about what christ believed and he he pulls a few verses from scripture um one is resist not evil but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek turn to him the other also um he is going off of the king james version i'm assuming here <laughs> <laughs> with kind of uh, well, the ESV, ESV didn't exist. <laughs> right, that's right. He's not going. He even off of died his... died before the NIV was was existing. I think. True. True. Um, and so, part of what I want to point out with this is um, the following verses are definitely going to be on the moral side. What yeah. what Christ taught morally, um, and this again goes back to our discussion of um, liberalism, kind of being the reigning form of Christianity during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one verse that he quotes. Uh, another one which. Personally, anecdotally, I see this quoted all all the time um, as a, a great thing that Christ said, um, judge not lest ye be judged. And in fact, there's an R.E.M. song that deals with this directly. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Mm, no, I no. don't. Maybe if you tell us the song. I think it was from... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would help, wouldn't it? Right. Is it Night Swimming that you're referring <laughs> no, to? No, no, no. <laughs> no. Um, I'm sorry. I should have been more prepared, but it just occurred to me. Um, there's some song that says, uh, Judge Not Lest Ye Be Judged is a great quote by Christ. And um, Michael Stipe, lead singer of R.E.M., kind of does a similar Russell argument. There you go. This clip is from Lala.com. What's this song called again? New Test Leper. That's right. This is from uh, New Adventures in Hi-Fi. Is that right? The album? Yes. Exactly. 1996. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So it's in there if you want to hear the rest of it. Yeah. And, and it's an interesting thing. But So he, he says, judge not lest you be judged. Michael Stipe also um, relates this quote. And then... Uh, Later in the song, he says what he de- what he disagrees with um, with Christ's teaching. So, very similar. Um, another quote that uh, Russell gives, or, or Bible verse, he says, um, "Give to him." This is quoting Christ: "Give to him that asketh asketh of thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away." Um, and going on, another verse that he says, um, Christ says. If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that which thou hast and give to the poor. So there's there's kind of a, a, a strand, a thread going through this that relates to Russell's activism that we spoke of earlier. Mm. It is very moral. It's very, um, like I said, activist. You know, I, I just want to make the note. A lot of these guys, F.H. Bradley and other people, British guys at the time, British metaphysicians, they had corresponding uh, political theories. Mm. And it, it makes sense, but it, these idealists... And then Russell leading the, the reaction against it. But they would often have these huge systems of politics in their minds, too. It's actually quite fascinating. I just thought I'd leave that out there for people in case they wanted to look into it. Yeah. I was going to say that in reference to these quotations that you're reading from uh, Russell uh, referencing Christ, I thought it was interesting that he just understands these quotations as maxims. Right. And so it's like, what did Christ teach? Some good principles. Mm-hmm. Propositions and, that right. I can hang my hat on. And so, um, of course, as a biblical student, I immediately think, oh, that's bad exegesis. But, yeah. but it fits in with fair, a liberal right, to, agenda. 
to be fair, he's actually giving you know a proper view of the Christianity he's critiquing in the first place. That's true. Which is this is how. Um, I mean, if he's referencing the the Catholic Church, I mean, I'm I'm sure he'd gain a lot of Catholic commentary that teach exactly what he's trying to say. Is yeah, I believe that principle. It's a maxim, you know. And so, in that respect, you know, I'm not. I'm thinking that's bad exegesis, but that's from my perspective. Yeah, um, yeah. And so from him in his context, it's like you know that's fair mm-hmm. as far as the Christianity is critiquing. Point yeah, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we can talk at some point about. Um, people who have a uh, maybe misguided conception of the church in the first place. And so what they're actually arguing against is something that we would argue against as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, it's it's really just a plea for positive apologetics and, and proper theology um, in doing apologetics, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, so then, uh, again, natural flow, he gets into the defects in Christ's teaching. He's said what he agrees with, and now he has to say what he disagrees with. Um, he opens uh, in part of this section, he says, it is quite doubtful whether Christ ever existed at all. And if he did, we do not know anything about him. So that I am not concerned with the historical question, which is a very difficult one. So, okay. Um, again, really refre- reflecting a lot of the uh, Christian quote-unquote scholarship that's happening in that day that really is not concerned with Christ's histor- historicity, but more of his moral teaching and how that just uh, outweighs everything. Yeah, that's sort of... Uh, that's sort of directed at um, 19th century German liberalism. Where yes. It's like, yes. well, you have the you know, the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Yeah. It's like, yeah, uh, whether or not he existed or not, let's just is irrelevant to right. many liberals. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and he's and he's saying what Russell's saying is, even if it if the historicity question is is irrevel- irrelevant, I'm still going to disagree with him. Yeah, and so yeah. I think that's like that's actually him being consistent. Yeah, you know, that's right. And it doesn't dodge the the question in, in the way Christians try to dodge atheists by saying, "Well, you know, the historicity question's up in the air." Yeah. So, and and to answer that, I don't want to go off on a, on a tangent or anything, but um, if you guys could just give a, a quick answer, why is it important that Christ actually did um, exist in history and did the things that he said he did historically? Um, uh, because Scripture demands it. <laughs> uh, I would say that. It, well, f- for us, it's a, for us, what happens to us, uh, you know, Christ's death and resurrection is our death and resurrection. In mm-hmm. other words, if Christ himself didn't actually raise from the dead, like 1 Corinthians. Yeah, we're of all people most the, to be pitied. Right. That's 1 In, Corinthians 13. 15. 15. 15. It's Sorry. so, well, the resurrection section, yeah. And yeah. then, um, yeah, Jesus Christ had to be an historical person who came to live, to die, to be raised again, because he represents us. He's not some abstract moral principle. There's a deep representative theology, a federal headship theology, a covenantal theology in Scripture. Had he not died, there would actually be no satisfaction for sins. He had to have been, been real and tangible and a person as much as we are, because God demands judgment from us. And if Christ did not exist, that judgment that satisfaction has not been paid. Penal substitutionary atonement falls apart. Right. All sorts of things fall apart. Federal headship just goes out the window. Yeah, and Adam, we, likewise, we have to maintain was an historical person because his sin, our sin is is given to us. It's imputed to us from him. Our guilt is from him, and the corruption is handed down. Right. Um, and and therefore, we also need an historical person to come and to pay satisfaction for those sins that we for that guilt and, and the corruption that comes to us from Adam and, and that we add to every day in our own lives. Right. If he wasn't crucified, we were not co-crucified. No, we if have no, no air, salvation. We're not heirs. No. Right. Yeah. Our um, union would be a union with a uh, moralistic principle. Yeah. Not so a the person. historical question is 100% germane to Christianity. If we, if we pull out Jesus as historical, then we have no Christianity. That was Machen's point in Christianity and liberalism. It's not just a liberal Christianity. It is a completely different religion. It is not anything related to what Scripture teaches. I always immediately relate it to, as soon as you take the person out, what that demands is just some sort of ethic as your your religion. And as soon as that happens, your religion is a works religion, which according to Paul is... To be anathema, mm-hmm. it is the false gospel. 
Well, and not to mention that at that point, you're just comparing notes on which is a better ethic from some kind of outside external um, belief system. And so if if it ends up where Christianity's ethics Mm -hmm. actually isn't the best, well, then forego it. Because really, if ethics is primary, then if a better ethic comes along, well, then you go with that. Right. Obviously, we're getting off on a tangent. Yeah. We have lots (laughs) to to say on this. Um, But anyways, yeah, it's very important. Go on, Jared. Yeah. Okay, well— History um, is important. History is very important. Good, uh, good quote there. Um, another aspect that I'll talk about, this is still in the section uh, defects in Christ's teaching. Um, it, Russell oh, thinks okay. that... Read, what does that heading say again? Defects in Christ's teaching. <laughs> <laughs> right. It just, I mean, he is being consistent. Um, yeah. But, the, yeah, continue. Yeah, I know, I, I know what you're saying. With I himself. Mean, yeah. Russell comes along and says, no, Christ got it wrong, and let me tell you what what he got wrong. Um, one of the things he thinks he got wrong is uh, Russell believes that Christ thought that the second coming was going to be very soon. Um, that he believes did not happen uh, under the timeline that he thinks Christ thought it would happen. Come on, um, Russell, you don't have a two age Christology. You don't, <laughs> God, that was so basic. Yeah. Just kidding. The standards. <laughs> um, and, and this I thought was funny. This is related to the second coming. He, he relates another personal anecdote. He said, um, this is Russell talking, I knew a parson who frightened his congregation terribly by telling them that the second coming was very imminent indeed. <laughs> but they were much consoled when they found that he was planting trees in his garden. <laughs> well, hey, Luther. They I think asked, that was a Luther reference. Yeah, they asked Luther what he would do if he knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow. And he said, I'd go plant a tree today. Yeah, right. That was because of his doctrine of vocation and calling and that that we can glorify God in everyday activities. But um, no, it's because he didn't believe it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I don't know. I I point this out for no. I mean, it's (laughs) it's funny in the first place, but also, you know, what is this philosophy for jokers? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, PFJ. Um, But this is, you know. Uh, it's clearly a bad example of someone in the Christian community who's just constantly invoking fear in their congregation based on a second coming yeah, being quote unquote we, imminent. That's that's not the way to go. We we no, we do want to preach the second coming is imminent because yeah. that that's you know what we do because we're all millennialists. That, that's what we do. The imminent coming of Christ you can come back at any moment. Yeah, and and it is important to stress that we need to be ready. That sh- that today is the day of salvation. Uh, you can't delay this. Uh, you can't wait till tomorrow, but the Lord can come back at any time. But that's doing that is there's a right and a wrong way to do that. And that's what right. he might be reacting to is the, the fear mongering. And that's the, right. And the, the method, the method. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. They're trying to coerce people by, f- by fear in, in a horrible way. Uh-huh. Uh, in, basically into just pressuring them as a salesman into, you know, saying the sinner's prayer kind of thing. My mom always called them rooftoppers. Rooftoppers. They just... Oh, yeah. Went out on the roof. Yeah. Just waited. Like you too. <laughs> oh, that's such an obscure reference to a video, <laughs> but... Um, he goes on then, and there's a section called uh, The Moral Problem, and this is The Moral Problem, problem with Christ's Teaching. Uh, it, it's a lot of paragraphs. Basically, it's he has a problem with the concept of hell, um, which is yeah. not new at all. Um, and I, I don't want to get into a lot of these details because we could that could be another sidebar. Um, but what I thought was interesting was um, if you've seen the video of Hitchens um, in his debate against uh, Doug Wilson yeah. um, that he had actually at Westminster, um, Russell here makes – a point he says um there's the instance of the gathering swine where it it certainly was not very kind to the pigs to put the devils into them um and and hitchens makes the same point i i think it's at that debate if it's not there it's elsewhere but i've never really understood why um these people kind of focus on the cruelty of putting devils into pigs um of all the moral <laughs> things that you can focus on i would think that would be kind of low on the moral ethical totem pole well, people <laughs> People, pigs people are connected. pets now. Well, isn't it, it? You know, if you want to be a critical scholar, you could say, well, they, you know, they didn't eat swine, the Jews. So right. They're just. It's one of those post things they just made up, a myth that yeah was used to kind of fit in with their dietary restrictions. And yeah, and you know, 
I, I remember clearly, and I, I wish I had the date, but um, Carl Truman preached an amazing sermon on this passage uh, at Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, OPC. In oh, Hamburg. I remember. This is a great sermon. Did you hear that? Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. It, it was incredible. And we'll we'll try to get a link or something uh, to that if we can. Um, and I guess if we can, I mention it for no reason at all, just to <laughs> well, say that it exists. If it's there, we'll get it. We'll yeah. put it in. Um, so anyway, it was just kind of a, a curious connection why Russell went. I see just a lot of parallels between Russell's arguments and Hitchens' arguments and their method of arguing and just their their whole frame of mind. Oh, sure. That's what I'm saying. I mean, this was this is even if people aren't conscious of it, it's uh, it's become the foundational document of so much of 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 a humanist or atheist perspective. Yeah, that's right. And if you if you read listen to the debate between Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein, you find a lot of these same arguments. Yeah, yeah, that's from, right. From Stein. Yeah. Um so really the the term new atheism is a really it's a misnomer. It's not really new. It's just um repackaged atheism, but that's yeah. not quite as catchy as new atheism. <laughs> um and then he he uh, ends off this section with saying, uh, I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above uh, Christ in those respects. So um, you you know where he stands on the whole uh, Christ's moral teaching. Yeah. Um, he The next section he goes into is uh, the emotional factor um, of belief in Christianity. Uh, I won't get into that a whole lot either because that's pretty self-explanatory. It's but emotional. Yeah, it's emotional. I might end up being emotional and <laughs> talking about it. And then really the the last section um, or one of the last sections is how the churches have retarded progress or slowed progress. And again, he, he mentions the Catholic Church explicitly in this. Um, but he just goes through and says, okay, how is the church messed up throughout its history um, and, and we know that the church, uh, as a whole is clearly not perfect. And, um, you know, we have a reason for that. It, it's sin. We're not oh, yeah. any, anywhere close to perfect. Um, the church will mess up again. The church will have some kind of crazy error. If Christ doesn't come back in the next hundred years, it, it will be, um, you know, there'll be somebody in the church who messes up. How often do you see someone in evangelicalism or some preacher, you know, like, like recently, I forget his name, but the Ted guy Haggard. who was. Yeah, com- completely, you know, anti-gay, anti-homosexual, preach, preach yeah. about it all his life. And then you, you find out he had some kind of crazy, I don't know, dealings with like a, a crazy website. Um, so those will always come up. They will come up in the future and they by no means discredit the Christian religion. There are atheists out there who are, I'm sure, just as bad and, and do just as bad things. And so um, I think what we need to focus on is um, the arguments, the content, not so much the people representing the arguments and the content. Yeah, I was going to say that Paul commands that the uh, elders of the church have a good sense of rebuke, you know, and um, admonishment. And it'd be, yeah. why would that even make sense if the church is supposed to be perfect? Right. It's like, no, in order to be a leader, you have to be able to get rid of all the junk that's going to happen throughout the rest of the, you know, the rest of the history of the church. Mm. So, it doesn't even make sense for Paul to have that qualification if we assume, oh, well, the church is only going to do good for right. you know, absolutely everything it does. Yeah, yeah. That will not happen in, in uh, before the, the second coming. So the last couple of sections I'll just go through quickly. Uh, he, he has a section called Fear, the Foundation of Religion, um, and this is definitely a, a psychological explanation. Um, he says religion is based, I think, primarily and mainly upon fear, which is interesting. We can circle back if we want to on this. And then um, the last section is called What We Must Do. Um, Where do we go from here? He says uh, we should conquer the world by intelligence um, and not merely by being slavishly subdued by the terror that comes from it. Um, The whole conception of God is a conception derived from the ancient oriental despotisms. Um, He says it's not worthy of self-respecting human beings. Um, Mm. That's partially right because we're not supposed to respect ourselves in the ultimate sense. Um, we are as images of God, but not in the ultimate sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he goes on to, to say that um, these are words uttered long ago by ignorant men. Um, the Bible is antiquated. You've heard these arguments before. So um, anyway, that that is kind of a basic summary of where Russell is. Um, and again, this was on a popular level and, and had a lot of um, influence and sway among people who were questioning religion in general and Christianity in particular. Just to give an overview as far as a critique, um, what we do as Reformed theologians is we always try to find in any argument the foundation, the basis, 
the you know the the uh, the bullseye of anybody's argument. And so, and, and I really do think it comes out at the very end where he he's talking about the fear and the foundation of the of religion. Yeah. Um, and he basically what he he contrasts is religion versus science. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically says, you know, religion has messed everything up, and you know, uh, so much cruelty and wickedness has happened because of religion. But science is the way to go. And a sort of external critique of that of that would be. Well, science has produced the atomic bomb, and, and so it was the atomic bomb. You know, a product of religion? No, not really. Was it? It was a product of science, and so, but that really wouldn't hit the bullseye, would it? It'd just be sort of on the edges. But a just real, casting stones back and forth. Yeah, right. it's just a shouting match of yeah, uh, yeah. you know, bad effects. Shout That's what D'Souza would would say back to him right here. Just to to be honest, that's what he would say. Is he'd mount up evidence to say no, science is evil. But he doesn't yeah. really get at the fact that, um, well, how do you talk about you know the church and science and everything, you know, without dodging questions and just sort of being ad hominem arguments? Um, but when he does quote uh, science, or when he does begin to talk about science, he has this quote. He says, uh, "Science can teach us, and I think our own hearts can teach us." You see, right there, it's it's interesting that he sees that a sort of. Uh, our posture on the world is, is rooted in the heart. And I think that was interesting when he first said that. Um, our hearts can teach us no longer to look around for imaginary supports, no longer to invent allies in the sky, but rather to look to logic, to reason, to empiricism itself. No, but he, he gets even further deep into that, which is the same place that Rene Descartes starts yeah. with his philosophy. And last to week, that was our, our episode. Right, and, he, and it's to look to our own efforts, right? So at the very bottom of our, you know, the reason we're here and, you know, what is good in the world and our epistemology, our ethic, everything, our ontology, it should be based, all of it, on ourselves. And at that moment, you can begin to ask Bertrand Russell, which self? Yeah, me, you, the guy in India, the guy at Wawa, well, the nation, right. Nathan Shannon guy at Wawa. Which one, <laughs> right? And because you have automatically projected what you think is true to yourself on everyone else. You see, this is his universal claim right here: is that you know it's on our own efforts, and that should be some sort of assumed innate category that everybody has. But he doesn't draw it out here, and. I know it's not fair to critique him too heavily here because he's not giving a whole epistemology, but that is an assumption that if I were debating Russell here, yeah. um, I would hang on this quote right here, yeah. and I would just continue to to bug him about it. Yeah, um, it, it's also interesting, and, and this is another sidebar, definitely. But um, I've just noticed that whenever atheists are arguing for ethics it's always in the context of something relational and so they're still hanging on to you know that there is something redeeming in in man and at some level we should expect that but at another level um it is you know, another example whenever um or, or many times when you ask um someone who doesn't believe in god or, or whomever um what would what will heaven be like a lot of the times it's, well, it's, you go to the place where you are happiest, you know, and that usually involves like mm-hmm. a wife that you lost or a family that is no longer there or, or something that something that's relational. And it's just, um, I only bring that up as just an observation that there is something so inherent within us that needs um, other people and, and their validation mm-hmm. and a relational aspect to it. And so what you don't see here is, um, this isolationist, um, non-relational factor, you really do see that there is something inherent within human beings that needs that kind of um, relational aspect. Mm. That's a good point. That's a good point. I was also going to uh, point out another interesting fact um, as far as his argument goes, and it's back to... The but first, dis- a non-interesting fact. Right. The first <laughs> non-interesting fact is this sounds sort of like a political speech. I just have to say that. And when you get to the end, it's like, no self-respecting human should. Yeah. yeah. It's just sort of like, 
Yeah, this sounds like a presidential address. Um, and it's kind of ad hominem, too. Right. But he talks about when he when he gets rid of the intelligent design debate, when he you know points out you know fallacies in there and everything, he responds to the, the person who would ask him the question, well, what what is the meaning of existence then in the first place? Because if if there is no God, then if it isn't designed, then it's just it's gonna the Earth is gonna just blow up, you know, it's the, because the sun's gonna blow up and we're all gonna die. So what's this all worth? Yeah. And he says, well, that's true. It's not really worth anything in the ultimate sense. And now your response to that might be, um, oh, you know, that's horrible and that's miserable. And he's gonna say, well, you just you're just hanging on it. You know, you shouldn't hang on that fact. And that's going to happen. That's not going to happen until a couple millions of years, according to our science. So, you know, his, his answer to that really is just don't worry about it. Yeah. Or just, you, you just put your mind on other things. Yeah. It, well, and it's interesting that he does recognize that there uh, is uh, something important about teleology. So that if right. all this is for nothing in the long run, is that, you know, human um, beings and earth and everything that you see ends up being just completely consumed by the sun or whatever. Um, that's That has direct implications for what we do now. So that if everything just burns up with the sun, what is the point of being nice to each other? What is the point of living a good life? What is, what's really the point of anything? If yeah. we're just molecules floating around there and our eventual end is just going to be fire consumption – it just it levels everything that's remotely important. So I think you're right. You know, it's just so the consequence is don't worry, be happy. Uh, right. I, I don't think so. I think this is a, a great example. Um, and Dr. Oliphant teaches this in apologetics class is that um, unbelief is um, is very, very self-deceiving. It is steeped in utter self-deception and here's an example. Um, Russell will agree with Ecclesiastes, right, with the logic of Solomon here, where he would say, you know, well, then the world is absolute, it's vanity of vanity. And he would say, yeah, it's vain. But he doesn't get it, right? He, he, he understands that it's vain, but he's so self-deceived that he doesn't understand the importance of that fact, right, of where his his whole philosophy, his whole argument leads to utter vanity. He doesn't get why that's such a big deal. Mm. And that is an example of utter self-deception. Mm. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> <laughs> On a level interesting, it's about a seven and a half maybe. So that's yeah. worth talking about. That's worth, no, I, I completely agree. That's, that's a very valid point. Your father has the famous Russell anecdote where Russell says, he yeah. was asked, you know, what if you die and, you, and you're before God? What do you say? And Russell said his answer is not enough evidence. Yeah. And um, that happened in 1970. And um, Russell did not say that. <laughs> when he met yeah. God, he did not say not enough evidence. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for that. I uh, appreciate that overview. And if you want to read this article yourself, this essay yourself, we will have a link to it. On the website, Why I Am Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. Uh, if you would like to uh, get more information from Westminster Theological Seminary, you can find them online at facebook.com slash Westminster Online, as well as youtube.com slash Westminster Online. You can find more information about Reform Forum and all of our other programs, including Christ the Center, Reform Media Review, Reform Classics, etc. All of that's online at reformforum.org. But until next time, we hope you pick up and read and that you tune in again to Philosophy for Theologians.